Airing from the No Sponsorship Studios, this is Buddy Walk with Jesus, where real life and the kingdom of God connect. Now, your hosts, Joe and Edgar. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to just really come before you. Father, that you would give us insight, that you would allow us to hear your voice, that you would speak to our hearts new things and that you would not hold back from us. Father, we ask for all that you have. Father, we want all that you offer, Father, because we know it is of you that we're getting. We're not asking for gifts. We're asking for you, the gift of you, to know you better, to follow you better, to learn to love you more. Father, that we could be more humble before you and come quickly when we do something wrong and ask for forgiveness, Father, that we would not hold ourselves more important than you, that we would not let ourselves be defined by anything else other than you, that everything would fade into the background and into the darkness so that we could see your full face, your light of glory, and that we would know and adore it and treasure it and be jealous for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, what is up, community? Welcome back to Buddy Walk with Jesus. Uh, As always, as we get started, we want you guys to know two things. You are prayed for and that you are loved deeply. Uh, A couple of quick reminders here at the top, down in the episode description, as well as at the website, buddywalkwithjesus.com. You'll be able to find a link to our Discord server. It's our platform for a collection of the saints. Uh, We're looking to cultivate a space where believers can come together uh, to be able to talk and fellowship and have, there's already some really good conversation that goes on over there. And so with this platform uh, and our listener base being so diverse from across the world, uh, this is a great opportunity for believers and kingdom citizens from all over to be able to come together in one place. Uh, also down in the episode description is the link for our prayer team's email address. That's prayer at buddywalkwithjesus.com. If you are looking for prayer, do not hesitate to reach out. So continuing on with this buffet of falsehoods, the wrath of God and hell aren't literal. They're just metaphors for swimming against the flow of God's love. Now, we did a full deep dive into hell a few months back that you should check out for a more thorough explanation. But Reader's Digest version is that we see several different literary tools and styles throughout the Bible that Edgar could probably explain better than I could, but included are literal and metaphorical. And we see plenty of examples of each throughout scripture. We know there's a lot of conjecture in the Christian space about which style hell was written about in, but it's our belief that scripture is speaking of a literal place, that we see examples that are literal for wrath and hell, that it's a literal place that was originally designed for the fallen angels, that was repurposed, for lack of a better phrase, for when man fell. Now, I know that this is hard to talk about for some people. 
It seems like to me, part of the problem is looking at this concept from the human point of view. Not only have humans distorted these topics and these concepts like wrath and hell and judgment, but criminals are by and large typically the last to admit that they're guilty. But wrapped up in all of this whole topic is justice. A world where consequences don't exist isn't a world that I would want to live in and certainly isn't a world that has any measure of justice. When wrong is done, justice is needed. And I think that that's a concept that even the world would agree with, even if from there the path becomes distorted. And I know that these kinds of sentiments are typically framed within a larger justice or love centered message but the truth is when you take out consequence real justice and real love go away too i would love to spend the day with the person who concluded this yeah i would just love to hear them speak and see how they arrived at this this would be similar to me saying to you and and, and see if this makes sense to you the wrath of god to a human is like swimming against the flow of God's love. So if I'm a wife beater, if I um, drop a, uh, what's the, the bomb now? Nuclear bomb on somebody. On, on a, well, not on somebody, but on a bunch of somebody. Oh gosh, forgive me. But is that swimming against the flow of God's love? Uh, does this sound lack of a better word, silly to anyone else. Humanity is capable of vast evil. Even an individual could do something vast. And to equate it with swimming against the current of God's love, it's just not making any sense. No. I, I can't speak any more than to say this is a poorly thought out argument for saying that the wrath of God and hell are not an actual place. We are objects of wrath because of our sin nature. We are capable of doing unimaginable horror. And we've seen that displayed throughout our human history. Even nowadays, we have individuals when faced with an opportunity to stand in and do something to save someone will not do it. We call it cowardice, we'll call it many things. You know, survival instinct. You know, there's many different things. But to say that the wrath of God and hell are not literal because it is something that God is love, so therefore he can't be wrathful and hell can't be real. This is a perfect segue into the next point that God's justice isn't punitive, it's restorative. And this is something that without even knowing it, sometimes a lot of Christians have had a lot of things to say. Uh, in case you don't know, uh, punitive justice is essentially uh, you've done something wrong 
and there's a consequence and you're experiencing that consequence because you've done something wrong versus restorative the idea that it's just justice that seeks to restore the person of from what they've done or what they've lost or something along those lines now the problem with just strictly restorative justice is the focus on self and what you get out of it again criminals are typically the last to admit that they've done something worthy of consequence so the answer here is it's both God does seek to restore us, but we are the criminal in this scenario, and that is exactly what makes salvation, grace, and mercy so beautiful. This this one's a rough one for me because um, I'm really trying not to be sarcastic here, but when someone makes a statement like this, they're taking on the infinite God and, and putting him down into their finite paradigm. To think that punitive or punishment cannot be restorative is they take out the one ingredient. And what's that? God's redeeming ability. Punishment, even punishment unto death, can have a redeeming factor if God is involved. If I go and I kill 40 people, do you want me restored or do you want me punished? Because they, they make it almost an either or. God's justice would be to restore me. So what does that mean? That means I don't get punished. By this statement, I don't get punished. As a matter of fact, what I do is I get, you know, gifts probably. I'm, I'm being treated with accolades. I mean, what, is, what does it mean to restore somebody who should be rightfully punished? You are punished because there's something that needs to be A, learned, B, there needs to be, I don't want to use the word retribution. There needs to be some kind of, and what's the word, recompense, or something to be made, the person to be made whole as possible. And this is very difficult to do if you take a life. But if you do something like you steal money, you pay it back. Okay, and you go to jail so that you learn not to do it again. This is not difficult to understand. And there's there's this weird thing that happens when we say, well, he's God, so he shouldn't punish anybody. Um, he's God, so he can. He absolutely can. And there's really nothing you can do about it. I don't I don't want to make this sound like God is unloving. His desire, and he talks about it, his correction is to bring about change or transformation. A guy who always cheats on his wife, who always cheats on his wife, should there be some kind of consequence? That's probably a better word. Yes, his wife leaves him, or he catches a disease, or he winds up with a woman who makes his life a living hell. There are many variations that could happen. But for him to be restored, meaning that there's no consequence, is not a biblical thing. And it's also not something that a righteous person would agree with. If the only reason we believe this is because we don't want to be punished when we do something, I totally understand the mindset. It's self-deceiving. 
restoration in of itself doesn't fit what this is saying. You're restored from something that's negative, broken. Here, in this case, it is something that deserves punishment. What is God's justice? What, what is God's justice? You have to ask that question. What does justice look like from God? Now, if you think it's because he wants to hurt the person, he wants to be mean to the person, he wants to kill the person, he wants to put the person in hell. No, that's not God. That's a, a, a what do you call it, a caricature before yes. a stereotype? That, that is man's understanding of God. God's desire is for the person to wake up. And believe me, this is a saying I heard many, many years ago, and I think it's clear. How many times do you have to get hit in the head with a hammer before you realize it hurts? Okay, it hurts. Learn it the first time. I, I'm not a big fan of this particular statement because I think it minimizes the, the issue that the person perpetrated. It minimizes it for the sake of, you know, having this warm and fuzzy thing going on. Believe me, I don't like to get punished, but I know I have to at certain points. All right, so this next one is a quick one, but it's important. You're not going to hell just because you didn't choose heaven before you die any more than you're going to heaven because you said a magical prayer at Church King. If you notice... There are several points in the Bible where vain repetitions are mentioned. And that's because at that point in time, pagan beliefs and magic, quote unquote, was a major belief in a lot of areas. And so it's creating this separation between this thing over here that relies on action, works, meaningless phrases being repeated over and over again and prayer that at face value is just words but god listens and responds again that separation between the focus being on you and the focus being on god salvation isn't about the phrasing of the prayer it's not even down to this one prayer of forgiveness it's so much more than just choosing heaven before you die. It's the start of the most important relationship we'll ever have. And we need to be careful not to sterilize that down into this individual exchange that gets you an insurance policy. When you have phrasing like this, I think it demands interrogation. You're not going to hell because you didn't choose heaven. It's not the right way to say it. You're going to hell because of sin nature. Sin that I'm, if not for Christ, I would be going to hell. I enjoyed sin from an early age. Whether it was disobeying my mother or father, um, and I've had some of my wonderful little moments with matches as a child, destroying property. I never set anything fully on fire. Uh, and I use the word fully for a reason. But so I would be what some people would in the old days call a scallywag, a rascal, a dentist, a menace. 
And I know from the early onset that sin doesn't wait to, you know, it's almost instinctual. Um, so by my own doing, I'm slated at an early age. Well, now this is hard for people to understand because they want to think that people are born holy and righteous. I'm not given to that thought. I, I grew up in a place where you knew that didn't exist. And I'm not sure where that kind of a mindset comes from. It wasn't in my zip code. I'll tell you that. Um, you learn to lock your doors, watch your purse, watch your wallet, watch everything, watch your kids. And well, Maybe not so much watch your kids because you wanted those rascals out of the house. But honestly, you go to hell because you are in opposition to God and sin has covered you. And the Bible says if you've broken one law, you've broken them all. That's the kingdom value of God. But what he did is he made it perfect that Christ would die and give his blood for you and save you from your sins. It does not require you to, you know, do the rosary, doesn't require you to, you know, sell Girl Scout cookies. It doesn't require you to do anything else but to be transformed by it. And by that, I mean to engage in intimacy with God. This saying a magical prayer is a distraction. You do invite God in, and those are words. You're to confess with your mouth. There's a reason for that. You can't minimize it because somebody wants to push a point that doesn't really hold a stance theologically. Sin is also, in Genesis 4, God told Cain, sin is crouching at the door and it's waiting for him. Now, he could open that door, let it in and let it have its way, or he could fight against it. Is this the one sin in his life? No. It, you know, we had that failure from the fall of, of man. Adam made sure that everyone who came after him would be tainted by sin. There's no way to do that. If you're human, you can't escape it. Um, you're, you, are, you have it in you, the seed of sin. This is why God talked about the seed of woman. The seed of woman is very precious and it has a meaning. And seed of woman went through every single woman down to finally we came to Mary. And I still believe that it doesn't go away, but the need was for Christ to be born of the seed of woman. Not any woman, but one who was devoted to God fully. Now, was she a sinner? Yes, she was. But she adored God and she was given to him through... She was given to him, and I'm going to say... And she was wise because she knew how to respond to him. And again, we talked earlier about she asked a question, how is this going to happen? Because I've no husband, I'm not married, I'm a virgin. She wasn't saying that God couldn't do that, how 
foolish or how silly. She was saying, how is this going to happen? Because it goes against what your law is. And then she got the answer. So going back to this, this thought, we and of ourselves are, I don't want to say yeah, well, I'll say it. We're doomed by ourselves. We don't have it in us to save ourselves. No good deed, no amount of giving, no amount of doing good deeds will ever get us into heaven. Christ does. And that's important to know. And no other religion uses Christ as the propitiation for our sins. Now, there's a heavy Catholic word from what I understand, but I didn't hear it in a Catholic setting. But for the payment of our sins, we cannot add to it. We cannot do something instead of it. There is no way around it. We, we minimize salvation when we try to go around it. It's like the thief that wants to come over the wall that the Bible speaks of. All right, so next we have Penal substitutionary atonement theory is absolute, we'll say rubbish, not the word that they used. God didn't send Jesus to die on the cross for your sins to satisfy his wrath. He did it to satisfy yours. So we've talked about what some have coined cosmic child abuse when referencing Jesus in the cross. If this were a true statement, it would make God every bit the monster that some make him out to be. This kind of statement shouldn't be surprising out of a group that clearly promotes self to the divine. And like we've discussed, in order to do that, you need to dispose of what the Bible puts there and distance yourself from truth. And this statement is among the biggest ways that you can distance yourself from the truth of the gospel. It's that simple. Everywhere in the Bible speaks to this. Countless places speak to the necessity of a savior. And yes, part of that comes down to understanding that in this scenario, we are the ones that are in desperate need of saving, that we cannot do this ourselves. There is no part of us that is in any way able to take care of all of this ourselves. We are not the divine. God is the divine. And so understanding the core fundamentals of the gospel of salvation of the relationship that we have with god it, it's absolutely vital to being able to understand that these kinds of comments are nothing more than statements designed to distract and destroy i'm gonna go full force on this for those who may not be familiar with um penal substitutionary atonement phrasing it basically refers to the doctrine that christ died on the cross as a substitute for sinners and who's that everyone on the planet who has ever lived and is living and will live 
So basically what they're claiming is that God didn't send Jesus to die on the cross, that he did it to satisfy our, our, our wrath makes absolutely no sense. And the Bible doesn't really back them up. This is why one of their comments on 15 is easily dismissed. The Bible talks, if what they're saying is true, then why in the Old Testament were there sacrificial lambs? The sacrificial lamb is a foreshadow of the payment that Christ would do as the perfect lamb that's alluded to in Revelation, well, not alluded to, is stated in Revelations. The sacrificial lamb was a yearly sacrifice because it was not, I'm using this word, pure enough to keep man clean. Only a perfect life lived, blood spilled out, can do that. And the only one who could do that is God. God did a perfect life that man was intended to live at the beginning, but failed. And because of that, we all need Christ's sacrifice, not to fill our bloodlust, but to save us. So this kind of phrasing minimizes in a very bad way what Christ has done what salvation is, and what our need for him is. This alone would make me walk out of that church very quickly. And I don't think I would do it as quietly as one might hope. But we know that the Bible says that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And one of the other ones that I think is important is that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hang is hanged on a tree. That's not our blood loss. That is substitutionary atonement. If you have any, what's the word? Indecision, I can't think of the word. Any questions about whether, whether progressive Christianity is valid, this one alone should clear it up for you. If they do not understand what Christ did on the cross, they have no basis for being an authority in your life. Absolutely no basis. They are there to fool you. So next, if sin means miss the mark, then we all sin in every way just by being alive, for we all fall short of the glory of God. Sin is one of those topics that gets brushed under the rug or overgeneralized way too much. It's become distorted by man, elevating some sins, adding in others like dancing or rock music, weaponizing the concept against someone to further themselves, and generally just not understanding or not being taught about sin nature. Here we have a statement that low-key undermines the significance of sin and takes translation out of context to try and further the point. Context is key, and defining sin in this way misrepresents it. 
Sin is active, and stating that you're just missing the mark is like giving permission not to try. There's no connection. There is no reason to put forward any kind of effort to try and avoid sin if you've diminished the significance like this. And a byproduct of taking away the significance of sin helps to further the agenda of devaluing Jesus. Sin is nothing short of the cause for eternal separation from God, and it needs to be treated with that measure of significance and importance. That is why repentance is so important. This goes back to our, the discussion I just made in the previous point. If we think of sin as missing the mark, then we really don't have an understanding of sin. Sin, again, his, in Genesis 4, was given a personality, a persona. It's an active, I want to say force, but I don't like that word. Missing the mark and claiming that that's what sin means is like saying there's only one type of pie. Um, there's only one type of dessert. There's only, it's such a sh narrow focus that we actually, and I hate to say this, miss the mark on what sin is. Sin, if we, we relegate sin to just, oh, imperfection, we are comfortable with imperfection. We are comfortable with misuse of our finances, misuse of our relationships, misuse of um, any material things like we may have, like our house, misuse of our job. We are so imperfect, we're accustomed to it, so we don't think it's a big deal. If we think of sin as being only a failure that we minimize that it separates us from God. Okay, as a Christian, if we sin, then what are we doing? We're ignoring the Holy Spirit who indwells us. We are deciding, and I've said this before, and I like the way it's phrased, it's my house, you don't tell me what to do. Does that sound like somebody who's really connected to the Holy Spirit? Is the person genuine? Sin, Paul said, it's not me who sins, but the sin in me. So he said, I don't want any part of that, even though when I fail. And he is saying, he's, he's, he's putting that line in the sand that he does not want to cross and let the sin become his identity. Okay, so he's not going back to the old man. He's going to fight, whether it's imperfectly or not, he's going to fight. And Mr. Mark may as well not be trying. If these people who put this statement out think that it's okay to miss the mark, they don't understand who God is. God desires a holy relationship with you, with intimacy, so that when he speaks in your ear, there's a free flow from your ear to your brain. Your heart picks up what's going on. If you're continually missing the mark, you don't care.
there are people who will go to church and they will say the magical words that were described and there's no transformation because it was not in the heart. And we're going to do an episode on the parable of the swords because I think it speaks to this much better than I had the opportunity right now. We cannot minimize sin as anything less than forcing ourselves to be separated from God. And I don't I'm not talking about losing salvation. What I'm talking about is putting a, a barrier between us and our heavenly Father. Unforgiveness is an example and it's a huge example. If we have unforgiveness, God doesn't bless us because we have willfully set up our kingdom and by that I mean we're not going to apologize. We're not going to forgive that person. We're going to always remember what they did. So we set up our kingdom. And we've done it in such a way that we don't see the sky of God or his kingdom or anything else because we've decided to be in our kingdom. Fortunately for us, the Holy Spirit is always at work and was always talking to us. And if we're willing to calm down, be slow to anger, slow to speak, quick to listen, we will realize our error and come into alignment with him, come into submission, surrender to him. And when you are indwelt and walking in intimacy, you're not missing the mark. You are naturally hitting the mark because you are in union with Holy Spirit who is in you. Okay, if we understand that when we walk around on the planet, we're not walking by ourselves, but we are indwelt, that may help us to understand what sin really is and not let it be our identity. And it's important to understand that any conversation that takes place that minimi that minimizes the severity of sin that the Bible has left out only seeks to serve the self. Done. If it's if it's conflicting with with the scripture on the severity of the separation from God, then you can understand that it is designed wholly and completely to make agreements that allow for self-rule, uh, regardless of what aspect of life that self-rule is in. Before I met Jesus, I was an object of wrath. That's what the Bible says, and it says it about me. I have no qualms about that. That's my was my default position. Did I understand that? Did I come out of the the womb an object of wrath? Well, what does the Bible say? Yes, I did. And it may be uncomfortable, but God has a plan. And that plan called for his son to die so that he could redeem the world. And that pretty much includes everything. Yeah. But what is it that happens? We decide whether we want it. Even the phrasing on this statement, I really don't like. I have a lot of problems. We don't choose heaven. Right. Choosing heaven is not going to get you to heaven. You choose God, but you do it through knowing that you have sinned. 
you can choose God all you want. And there are people who are like, I don't know whether to call them new agey or not. That's not what spiritual spirit is. I don't know what the word is where they believe they're connected to Jesus and the consciousness of God, but it's not God they're connected to They're They have this, this concept of Jesus, but not the Jesus of the Bible for some reason. Jesus clearly defines sin. It's dishonoring God. It is not bringing him glory. It is to berate your fellow human beings. It is to advance the work of the enemy. These things are sinful. And the work of the enemy is a very tricky thing because it doesn't have to be overt. I came from a sin position. That is the same as I'm saying I'm Puerto Rican. I'm a Puerto Rican at birth because my parents are Puerto Rican. I'm a sinner at birth because my parents are sinner. You know, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam, I'm going to put it right on him, messed up. And because of that, we all have inherited Adam's sin. If you are human, you have that. So you don't go to hell because you didn't choose heaven. You go to hell because we're sin. And, and I'm repeating what I've said before because this is a fact. This is what the Bible says. And it makes progressive Christianity uncomfortable that because they see people altruistically as good. I like to think of a person as good until they give me a reason not to. You hear that said a lot by well-meaning and well-intentioned people. I personally used to say I like to think of people as bad on until they do good, so that way they go up in my in my eyes instead of down. You know, even that is flawed, but it is what it is. Um, I like meeting people now on the basis of how God sees them. And mind you, that can be an effort on my part to see that. But I know that God's heart is for humanity. And he wants every individual of their own free will to come to him. And we do that through acknowledging our need for him. You don't come to God so that you can serve him in the role of an advisor. You come to God because you know you've sinned and you can't do it on your own. And you want to be with him. And you know that if you were to die, you would not like where you go. And your heart is in such a position that you don't want your loved ones to go there either. People are connected to people. It's relationships. It's what you do with those relationships that are important. God is all about relationship. If no one else existed but God, he would still be relationship. He is triune, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 17 that the Father loved him before the world was made. So there was relationship before anything else was made. And we can't understand this because we're finite. We can imagine what it's like, but we cannot feel it, understand it as, as the, the truth that it is. So we miss out on that opportunity and we start to relate to great foundational, spiritual, supernatural, natural truths on a temporary level. And we try to make it fit into our three-dimensional world. 
and we miss out and we mess up in trying to explain that. God can show any being in the world what love is from his eyes. It is possible. And he is able to show why we need him. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. If we were to be in God's unfettered glory, we would be extremely self-conscious, even to the point where we would try to flee each and every one of us because we would know we're sinful still, that we are given to making imperfection. And we have a basis for this in Isaiah. Um, when he was in the throne room and he saw God and uh, I believe it was an angel brought a coal and put it on his lips. He says, I'm a man of, uh, I'm a sinful man of people with sinful, no, I'm a man of sinful lips from a people of sinful lips. So he understood his propensity for sin in the presence of God. We have that same propensity. We have the ability, and I'll put it this way, the free will to do wrong things, even after what people call conversion. You can be intimate 100% with God and still have a propensity to sin. But wait, God has a remedy for that. It's called repentance. It is called repentance from sin. And yes, it is something we still use on a daily basis if we're truthful. So to try to minimize sin as, you know, it's a mistake that we have. We lose out on not only its impact or its influence, we also lose out on the remedy for it. The, um, I'm trying to think of the word, what God has done to overcome it. We minimize that. Sin is something that God cleanses us from it. Paul says our identity is not sin anymore because he says it is no longer I who sin, but the sin in me. So in other words, we're not supposed to partner with it. We're not supposed to treat it like, oh, I'm going to do hyper grace and I'm going to sin and then just ask God for forgiveness so I can go through and I can steal money. I can sleep with Yahoo and this one and that one and just pick in whatever. No, we can't do that. Sin doesn't because of what God has done, we cannot minimize it to say it gives us the ability, or I, can I put credit card to go ahead and say, okay, I can charge off this sin against Christ's blood. So there's something to be said about a person who's genuinely and intimately trying to pursue God with great love and abandonment and to learn from him. I don't think I'll ever... And I don't want to put myself in a bind here. I don't think I'll ever reach the level that I want to know God at because it keeps growing every day. The more I connect with God, the more hungry I get. Now, if I decide eh, I don't need to and my heart grows cold, then I wind up not wanting to do it more and I'm no longer influenced by those decisions. But God is good and he will break my hardness and get me to come to him. And I love that about him. And he doesn't need my permission to do it, but I say, do it, Lord, anyway. David said, search my heart and know if, and show me if there's any iniquity in it. 
So here we have, we have a relationship with God to see that we'll make mistakes. And all these little distraction statements that we are talking about should never take the focus of Jesus, of God the Father, of God the Holy Spirit. We should always be looking to be united with him. So lastly, we have Jesus is the true word of God, not the Bible. This belief system exalts a created form of Jesus, a manipulated version that says all of this nonsense is okay. Part of that, like we've mentioned, is creating separation between them and the Bible because the Bible is truth and the Bible is completely in opposition with their statements of faith. They concentrate on New Testament all in the name of, well, the Old Testament doesn't count anymore since Jesus. And Jesus himself stated that man does not live on bread alone. We know he taught out of the scriptures. Old Testament was the scriptures for him. So it's important to understand the significance of this sentiment. We live in an age where there's a million different forms of the Bible. There's different translations in book form. There's apps. There's commentaries. There's reading plans. There's even still CDs. Yet it's still just as tempting as ever to skip over taking in the Bible. And trust me, as somebody who lived with excuses for this for a long time, I've come to the conclusion that this is a non-negotiable. Now, this can go too far into heartless checkboxing territory, which isn't what we're talking about. But the truth is, being in the world, spending time with God is essential. It's important to understand that the Bible is so much more than a handbook or a moral guide for suggested living by God. It's God-inspired. It's holy. It's complete. So understand that God is very clear about this, and we need to be clear about the significance of God's word. Even if it doesn't look exactly like this, the Bible is something that is very easily tossed aside in a lot of groups of Christians and a lot of Christian communities. And that's something we need to lay claim to is the significance of the Bible. God's truth will never let you go. God's truth will never let you down. And we cannot let any group or any man steal that from us by leading us astray. So one of the things that is stated is Jesus is the true word of God, not the Bible. And I think just basically to show you the error of this statement is it's saying we don't consider the Bible to be the true word of God, that Jesus is. There is for some reason this thought that the two are divorced, that they are separate. Jesus answered, Satan, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we know that to be the Bible, the inspiration and the inerrant word of God. 
So when we say, when we try to pull Jesus as the Bible is not part of Jesus, then we're we're doing we're recreating Jesus, and it's not going to result in a good. Um, it's not going to come out with a good result. Jesus stands on the word, and as a matter of fact, he answered Satan with the word of God. He didn't say, "I stand on my own knowledge, and I'm going to share this, and I'm going to share that," and we know that. We know that the Bible in of itself does not contain the entirety of God because God is infinite. And even John ends with, if all the miracles that Jesus had written were to be written down, I mean, had performed, were to be written down, the books would fill up the world. So the Bible and Jesus cannot be divorced from each other. Whatever thought you have, take that one out of your head because it makes Jesus to be somebody else. And we would know there is probably a deceiver Jesus out there, meaning that there is a counterfeit. And that would lead you astray. So this is a wrap with our first deconstruction series on the emerging church. Hopefully this deep dive has been helpful and informative to what is going on. Uh, reach out and let us know if this is something that you guys enjoyed. And like we said last episode, you know, we, we put forward some, some responses to some tough questions and the Discord server is there if it's something that you guys want to engage about. Like we said, there's some really solid conversation going on there already, and we welcome that kind of thing. I know that there's some tough questions and topics for Christians to wrestle with, but we understand how important it is to address these things in truth, because like we outlined here, there are plenty of people out there that are more than willing to talk about this stuff in anything but the truth. And when the truth is not present, it becomes automatically a fertile ground for lies and deceit and manipulation. We see charismatic people rising all the time with silver tongues and manipulative words. And so the best way to combat these agents of darkness, this, the lies and the deceit and the manipulation is with truth. And we have that. We have that in the form of the Bible. We have that in the form of Holy Spirit. We have that in the form of open access to God. Go back, read the Old Testament. You'll understand the significance of that open dialogue and communication that's available between us and God. And so, church, we need to be willing to stand together in this. And I want to point out that while there's a lot of pointing out lies that happened and some tough conversations, one eternal truth through all of this that we can count on is God. 
It's truly a blessing that God is not this man-made creation, because then God would not be perfect. And we know that God is perfect. God is eternal. God is constant. And we get the blessing of not being responsible for our salvation. It's outside of our hands. Look around, guys. We're fallible. We will always fall short. And so I know that we covered some hard stuff, but it's important to remember that we can't be afraid of truth just because it's difficult. And when eternity hangs in the balance, we can't stay quiet about what we're seeing. Otherwise, we are part of the problem. Yes, Christianity is exclusive. Only through Jesus. It's the only way. One of the points that we didn't cover is God won't send you to hell for getting his name wrong. Now, we've already talked about the fallacy of saying that God sends people to hell. He doesn't. But specifically, this growing idea of all roads lead to God. If you've seen the coexist bumper stickers, and like we've talked about previously, this way of thinking has no problem co-opting aspects of different religions to quote-unquote save people for Christ. When we see over and over again throughout history, then, now, and forever, God is a jealous God and he has a big problem with idol worship and he has a major problem with giving anything his identity, calling anything God that is not God. So it's important to understand who God is, what God says, what he calls good and true and right. The kingdom has guidelines and rules, but they're for our good. He isn't lording over us with a giant rule book threatening to throw people in hell at the first hint of a mistake. And unfortunately, that version of God has been taught a lot. A lot of people know that that version of God. He only seeks good for us. His guidelines are a byproduct of his perfect love and justice. And remember, community, the world will commend those that bend to the world's value system. Following Christ is always going to put you in opposition to the world. And we cannot be afraid of that. We need to be willing to stand united in him, ready to take back ground. So as we end, I pray a blessing of wisdom to follow God and to know truth and the strength to stand up for it. Father God, I thank you for your word, the light that it is, that lights our path, that reveals to us the darkness that we have but we refuse to surrender or we don't know it's even in us, but we thank you that you desire us to be pure and to love you and to love our neighbors. Father, we pray right now that we would be hungry for you and hungry for your word, Father, that you would teach us even more of how much we need you, Father, that we would be the children that you would delight in, who, when you return, you will say, yes, I found faith on the earth. Father, grant us that mercy that we could light up your eyes and make you feel so proud that your work and your ministry is going forward. Father, I thank you for this opportunity, Father, that we would be surrendered hearts for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to Buddy Walk with Jesus. For more information, check us out at buddywalkwithjesus.com. 
Look for us on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. You can also find us on Discord at the Buddy Walk Community for prayer and fellowship. And lastly, if you check out the episode description, we have a listener support link and we would love your support for this ministry. As always, know that you are prayed for and know that you are loved.